everyone. Welcome to Native Minnesota, a podcast about the Native American experience in Minnesota and beyond. I'm your host, Rebecca Crook Stratton, Secretary Treasurer of the Shakopee Midwakton Sioux Community, or the SMSC. This podcast is a project of Understand Native Minnesota, a campaign focused on improving the narrative about Native Americans in Minnesota's K-12 schools. Today, we have two guests for you to hear from. I'm joined by Teresa or Terry Peterson and Walter Labatt, also known as Super. They are relatives and members of the Upper Sioux community. Both Terry and Super are focused on preserving and sharing Dakota culture. They wrote a book together, Voices from Pajuta Zizi, Dakota Stories and Storytellers, which relates a wonderful collection of both family stories and Dakota history and culture. In this episode, we talk about writing, family, language revitalization, and art. It's a great conversation, and I think you'll enjoy it. Good morning. Uh, I'm here this morning with Terry Peterson and Walter Labatt Jr., also known as Super. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, you both have a long list of credentials. I'm not going to try to name them all, but if you could just take a moment and maybe introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background. All right. Good morning, relatives. Terry Peterson, I'm Dakota and I come from the place where they dig the yellow medicine. Really happy to be here this morning with you. Thank you so much for having us. Super, you want to give yourself a brief introduction? Well, I'm Super. I come from Zizi. I'm uh, an artist. I do a lot of beat work, make drums, and that keeps me busy. My retirement, otherwise, it would be a pretty boring life if I just was retired and had nothing. So, um, so that's what keeps me busy. Thank you for having us. Thank you for being here. Um, you both co-authored uh, the book that we're featuring for our Minnesota One Read, which I'm very excited about. Voices from Pajuta Zizi, uh, Dakota Stories and Storytellers. Uh, it's a wonderful book, and I think it does a great job of, you know, highlighting uh, Dakota stories, but, you know, you lay out the families and um, it's really, really a wonderful story, your story. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the book and why you decided to write it? Yeah, actually, it kind of started with this, Rebecca. This is, um, and I, of course, it, this part of this is in the book as well, this part of the story. But, um, you know, this started a long time ago when I went off to college and my mom gave me this book and I, I didn't really read it for a long time. And then at one point I read this and in here is a story about my great, great grandmother that her, what would be his great, his grandpa, my great grandpa um, shared. And then my grandma's sister uh, self-published this, but basically that story really, it really touched me and it made me wonder about, who I am and where I come from and the people that are, I mean, there's a story in here about when she was like 10 or 12 years old and running, um, dodging bullets and, you know, literally, um, you know, a real issue around life. And I just think about, wow, this is, you know, I come from this line of 
really resilient women. <clears throat> so it really had um, an impact on me and it made me want to learn more. So over the years, uh, you know, just learning more, asking more. And then I spent a lot of time with, um, with Cerise. She would, she's my grandma's sister. Of course, in the Indian way, she'd just be my, my grandma. I spent a lot of time with her and asked her about um, her life and my grandma and her sister's life. And it just um, really made me think about who I am and where I come from. And I would say the more I learned, the more my own belongingness then increased as well. Because I sort of now have this kind of saying like, when you know who you are, who you come from, no matter where you go, you belong. So I would say that, you know, that's a long, you know, 20 some year journey. But um, over time, I asked my, my, um, my grandma Cerise then about doing this book again together and redoing it. Cause I would share little stories with people. I'd say, Oh, let me give me a copy of that book. And I'd say, there's no, there's no more copies. And uh, so I asked her, I said, let's, let's redo it. Well, of course, you know, life happens and children and, you know, all this things happen. You're busy with work and things like that. And then, um, and then she passed away. She was almost just, just shy of 101 years old. It always weighed on me, like that commitment, that obligation I made to her. Well, over time, I asked Dexie to join me in this project to get it done. And, you know, he's our family's historian. He's, he's who I, I now go to, you know, since my grandma's gone, to ask questions about Dakota language and history and things like that. And, of course, he's a natural storyteller. A lot of people know that about him. He's a good storyteller. So then over time, we, we decided we would do this project together. And, and what culminated, of course, then is Voices from Pajuta Zizi. And it's, so it's a collection then of all these stories that, that she has shared, that my great-grandpa shared, and their stories that they heard from the community, from elders of the time, including my great-great-grandmother story. So that's how it came to be. So it really was a healing journey for me. You know, a real, you know, a young person just asked me the other day, how long did it take you to write this book? I was like, oh, gee, over like 20 years, which is, of course, not a normal thing. Um, I don't think it should take that long normally. But when it's a healing journey, it, it's a process. Super, you're a historian and storyteller and um, relative, and you have all this wonderful knowledge. And in, you know, the Dakota tradition, a lot of times these stories have mainly been oral, right? So did you have any misgivings or, or feelings about putting these stories onto paper, um, good or bad? No, I think it's important that they, that they be saved. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I hear that, I hear that um, some of those oral historians of Years ago, had to memorize all these. You know, if they're talking about a hide painting, telling the you know winter counts, they had to memorize all this stuff, and that would be quite an accomplishment, I would think. Fortunate now that we have a writing system that we can record our our stories. No, I think it's, it's I think it's important that these uh, stories be saved. And when I 
when I think about hearing these stories, um, these people, elders of, the, of my time, told it in a very matter-of-fact way. You know, they never said, listen to this and remember this. These are important. They never said that. It's, and uh, and I stored them away. I, I like I say I, I stored them away, and um, forgot about forgot that I knew these things. And because um, when I was forty years old, if somebody would ask me, "What do you know? What do you know?" I I, I don't know nothing. Know nothing. <laughs> and then I I reached a certain age, and and stories started falling out of my head. I started writing these down. I remember talking to um, Danny Seaboy from Siston. I told him about that. I said, oh, these, I didn't know I had nothing, no anything. Then I said, they start out of my head. And he said, I have the same experience. I didn't know that I knew all these things. He started. So I don't know if that's a, the usual route of, of a storyteller. That was my route. That's how I ended up today. Harry, you were obviously there to hear all these stories um, fall out of his head. And something <laughs> inspired you to um, make sure those stories were captured and not just, you know, passed on from super to you. And, and now you've captured them in this book. What inspired you to pair up and... And put this all on paper. You know, I consider Dexie here my mentor. And I just feel like, you know, people can benefit from hearing his stories. And, you know, for my future grandchildren, I want, I want those captured for future generations. And this is one way that we can keep those stories going and share those moving forward. There's so much um, little tiny pieces of knowledge here and there, like language and place names and, um, you know, uh, genealogy and all that packed into all these little stories. So there, you could just read these stories over and over and, and, and then gain another understanding. So I, I, uh, and it's, and of course I have shared that it really supported my own sense of belongingness that my own connection to who I am. And so I want that for, for future generations. But in addition to that, I think one of the other big motivators for me, you know, I grew up in a school where I was pretty much the only Native person. I found out later there was maybe one other person. But um, it was really challenging. And as I think about the things that I learned in school, you know, we'd have those big textbooks and then Maybe we'd read a little something and then there would be maybe a little boxed in section that would tell about, you know, Indians in general. And it was always negative. It was always like, um, like we were starting wars and being the troublemakers. And it would always be in the context of past, like we were no longer alive. And, you know, that experience and I think being one of the only Native people in school and, and of course, you know, getting bullied for it too, really made me want to shrink and be invisible. You know, if that's, 
what you get noted for. And then when I think about books, you know, I, I really, it's so funny to be like an author. It just seems weird because I didn't even like reading, you know, even into college. Like I would try to get by going to school without even reading anything. I'm not like that anymore now. I love reading. But I think the reason was because none of these books really spoke to who I, who I was. I didn't get a connection to it. You know, you read about Dick and Jane and whoever, and who's that, you know, nothing really resembles who you are, who you look like, you know, of course the teachers and everything. And so I think that contributes to that lack of, you know, that lack of connection and that lack of belongingness. So I think it's important that we, we have diverse perspectives, diverse story within our school systems and our education, because it'll create more belongingness for everybody. Everybody has a story and perspective. Everybody has a truth to share. And we can have multiple truths all at once. We can hold those perspectives. So that's, that's part of the motivation here. And I, I was thinking, you know, I was at this event the other night and I told those you know, looking out to all those young native kids and, you know, they had all this big lineup of all the native authors. And I told them, I want you first to know how fortunate you are. And back in my day, this would never have happened. A school would never have like pulled a whole bunch of native authors together and distribute free books and have them visit. And so I just wanted them to know like how fortunate we are in this time. And it's just normalized for them. That's, that's what it needs to be. I probably went off a little bit on, I don't even know if I answered your question, but th- that's some of the motivation okay. for me. Yeah. When I was in sixth grade, we were all fortunate enough to, to be taught Minnesota history. And I remember our teacher talked about the 1862 war. And she said that the Indians knew that white men were fighting down south in a war. Now was an opportune time to go to war. And I knew that wasn't true because my dad had told me the history of our people. Her, his mother was on that march. Well, actually, it started in uh, Camp Release in Montevideo. It ended up in Fort Snelling. So I, my dad told me all those experiences about that war. And I knew what that teacher was saying was not true. But I didn't feel like I could or should enlighten her. So I, I, I stayed with my truth and the rest of the students picked up her prejudices, I'd say. I think that's a common, I mean, probably a common experience, especially for Dakota people, Mm -hmm. you know, in sixth grade when um, most of the public schools have Minnesota studies and they approach the Dakota war from a very academic Western lens um, that really doesn't have, you know, any sort of personal aspect to it that people can probably relate to. But in your book, you tell, you know, a story from a very personal level with people that are involved in their experiences. And I think that's going to be really powerful for especially our our native kids Mm -hmm. to be able to relate to some of that. Um, can you maybe talk a little bit about, uh, you know, maybe some of the students you've talked to since this book had come out? I mean, does anyone, you know, come out and say, 
hey, it was wonderful to see these stories reflected, to feel, you know, seen a little bit uh, as they read these. Yeah, of of course. Yeah, that's I think the big thing about stories is like when people hear a story, they start making connections to their own experience. But if we only tell one type of story, there's so many people that get left out of that connection. So I I think that's been to me like one of the biggest um, like understanding of where people are at. That they can make a personal connection to the story. Oh, that's you know, this happened to me, too, or like that. You know, when I the other night when I was sharing somebody in the audience that was not a student, but but older, an adult. I could see that it emotionally impacted them. So, um, again, when we can say like me too, you know, that, I, that helps people to say, yeah, my experience also matters. I matter. Yeah. This summer, I, uh, this summer I, I did a presentation, my art and, and of course this part of this book to uh, a bunch of teachers. And after the talk, one of the teachers came up to me and she says, you know what? She says, I'm a little irritated that we never learned mm -hmm. any of this before. And I told her, I says, that's a real common comment that I've heard that people find out that their education was not complete because they didn't get to hear. Yeah. But that, you know, that's, that's common. I've heard that comment many, many times. Yep, I have too. I was at the 10-year um, anniversary or of tribal state relations training yesterday. Um, they've trained over 6,000 uh, people across the state and given them, you know, a different view of history, um, especially from a Native American lens. And so I feel like every time I go to these trainings, I walk away and people are like, how did we not know yeah. this? Why yeah. weren't we taught this? Right. Yeah. I think it's a common frustration. So, yeah. um, you know, I'm hoping that the understand native Minnesota campaign will move the needle a little bit. Um, yes. On, yes. Absolutely. Know, yeah. That people aren't walking away saying, right. why didn't we learn this? I was involved in a study a few years ago and it, <laughs> it was kind of unbelievable. We still have students who, ask questions about like, do you still live in a teepee or they just associate like we didn't, you know, know other people were Indian people still are alive or, you know, they associate everything with like, um, like spears and weapons. <laughs> so it, it really blew my mind. We're just have, we're still here. We're, we have contemporary contributions to the greater society and, and uh, people often are just oblivious to it. So, yeah, we have a lot of work left to do. Yeah. And yeah, this is just one small piece that can hopefully at least open the conversation and have people start thinking and asking questions. Terry and Super's book, Voices from Pajuta Zizi, Dakota Stories and Storytellers, is a fantastic read. It is a look at five generations of Dakota family in Minnesota. You can learn more about the book at Minnesota Historical Society Press website linked in our description. If you are interested in Understand Native Minnesota's November 1 Read program, you can follow along to see photos on our Instagram channel, at NativeMNFacts. Now back to our episode. We've definitely been relegated to the past, especially in the education system. Yeah. So, um, But Understand Native Minnesota you know, really wants to 
fill that gap and help educators and students, you know, have access to materials. Mm -hmm. And this book is one of those materials. Um, This month uh, here in October, we've given away almost 17,000 copies uh, of this book in anticipation for the one read next month in November. Um, I'm super excited. What do you hope teachers and students take away um, from reading this book and and hearing your family stories? Well, I would say I want to think about, you know, some of something around for teachers um, to consider that not only does this book, you know, there's a teacher's guide that's going to be with it. That's going to accompany it. And it connects the standards, you know, has some really good questions. That's all good. but it goes beyond that. It, it creates a space for the multiple stories and experiences and perspectives that humanity has to contribute. In addition to increasing the visibility of this land's first people. Yeah. So there's a lot, there's a lot to take there. I mean, there's a lot around, even around storytelling, it helps create, you know, critical thinking skills. It creates, um, you know, opportunity for uh, coming up with creative and diverse solutions. You know, storytelling helps make connection, but also provides opportunity for questioning what is. Yeah. Super. If you could give this book to your sixth grade teacher, what would you hope (laughs) she would have taken away from it? Well, I I hope that it would have motivated her uh, uh, to learn more. Beyond her stereotype, stereotypical thinking, traditional prejudicial thinking, and maybe went back to school and took some history courses. We don't even get those courses, you know, many times our educators don't get them in their post secondary education either. So we've got mm. this huge gap. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to change directions a little bit. Uh, there's a lot of Dakota language um, in this book. Uh, Pajuta Zizi, obviously, um, was, you know, the yellow medicine people or the place where uh, yellow medicine is dug. Um, Can you talk a little bit about Dakota language and the process of incorporating it? And I know, Terry, you are a founder of a nonprofit organization, Dakota Wachohan. Mm -hmm. Um, And your language efforts are, you know, very evident in the book. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of that language? Yeah, I, I, I felt it was important to, you know, sprinkle some in, but not have it be in particular a language book because we want to make it really accessible for all people. Um, you know, people don't often realize that they're probably speaking Dakota language or attempting to anyway, um, through place names, of course, our state name. Um, so we wanted to have the opportunity to, for people to learn some words. Yeah. So that's included in here. And I think it's important, um, to remember that this, this land here, this state, Dakota language, Dakota Yapi is our, is the language of this land. Super is Dakota your first language? No, oh. I, I was, uh, raised with, uh, of, of course, as many, many people of my generation with uh, fluent uh, parents, you know, fluent speakers of parents, but, and, and it was just by happenstance that I pick up here and there and 
remember words and want to tell a quick story. Yeah, go and welcome a story. <laughs> I was thinking about when I was driving up this morning about this book and what what should I say? And I always think a lot of these stories came from remembrances of my parents, my mom. And I always think my mom is right here and uh, telling me something. And uh, this particular story or comes from I hearing my mother and my aunt talking. And they used a certain Dakota word, uh, which means, uh, which uh, is Okhashicha, uh, which means uh, stingy. I learned that to never be accused of being Okhashicha. Don't, don't ever be Okhashicha. Even if you were an alcoholic, it was worse to be called Ohashicha than a alcoholic. Because that is so opposite of the character of a Dakota is to be Ohamashde, to be generous. And uh, this particular instance was we were um, got a notice or something of an event in our community. I, I don't remember exactly what it was. Maybe it was a dinner or some kind of a doings, but it had a restriction on there. Went to community members and their spouses only. And my mom railed at that and she says, that's all Hashicha. And we were, um, before we had casino, before we were poor, Never put that restriction on everybody's welcome. <clears throat> so now I see other instances of it, you know. I see I see these notices of housing for veterans over housing for immigrants. In the United States brag about being the richest country in the world. Yet we set we set unfortunate against unfortunate. Instead of having compassion for all people, we, we want to restrict it to one class of people and to hell with the other one. That's all Khanshicha. Or we see or we see that Narcon is giving is, is being given free to people and people say, Well, why is it uh Insulin given free. Should be. Should be. We, we don't want to set one illness against another. That's Ohashicha. I think speaking of those values that, you know, your, your mother uh, passed down to you, the book talks a lot about Dakota values mm-hmm. and ways we live. Um, 
can you talk about maybe the importance of sharing that with the public to, you know, for people to get a little insight on, you know, a Dakota way of living and thinking? Yeah. I mean, in some ways the, you know, we want to elevate these as these are some of the Dakota values that make up our way of life and, and promote understanding of a certain way of living and being in the world and seeing the world. And at the same time, I think sometimes when we can tell these stories around these values, people can make a connection like, oh, yeah, we value that as well. I think the important thing about values, though, is not just saying this is a value, but how is it lived? How does it show up in your everyday life? And I think stories can demonstrate that. So, yeah, that's one of the big sections in here is that stories um, transmit values. All right. Should we switch directions a little bit again? Um, Super, you are an artist uh, and you do a lot of different kinds of art, Um, painter, drum maker, bead worker. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about your work as an artist and how you got started and maybe what you enjoy most? (laughs) (laughs) I always, uh, I always start out with uh, talking about I got into art because I sobered up. I sobered up and and um, when I sobered up, I was um, happy to be sober. But there was a there was a, a spiritual aspect of my being I was missing, and I decided I was. I had seen I had seen other people who had sobered up, and they all became super Indians. You might say <laughs> they did all the spiritual, and I was I just wanted to dance, experience that thing that I had danced when I was little, and um, because I didn't have the money to buy an outfit, I. I thought that I might try to try to uh, make my own outfit, and I remember when I was in college, I I tried to do some beadwork. I wasn't satisfied with it, as Indian people are. Most Indian people I are exposed to that they know what is good beadwork and what is bad beadwork, and I was doing bad beadwork. But anyway, I was <laughs> gonna try it again, and I don't know for some. From college to when I sobered up, something happened. And uh, I was really satisfied with my beadwork. And uh, I took my, one of my first pairs of moccasins I, I took, I, you know, we all, we all want to please our parents, right? I wanted to, I, I took my moccasins back to my dad. My dad, uh, he liked him. Uh, he was getting the beadwork moccasins, and he, that's when he was getting kind of emotional. He said he thought that uh, thought that uh, this was a lost art, and uh, I ended up giving him the moccasins. I mean, after after that, and I always say the interesting thing about that was my mom. She never talked about my my beadwork. I'm sure she liked it. She never said anything. She was 
she really liked my drums. She, she just couldn't get over how, how I could make those drums, you know. That was really the start of my uh, art, art career. At that time, I was working construction, and uh, there was a there's a real positive feeling about being creative. Makes you feel good. Making beauty, you know, making beauty makes you feel good. Then, when somebody buys it, they oh, they just love it. That fills, you know, fills the the soul with. Good feelings, and um, I th I thought maybe I should uh, be an artist full full time. But when I was in college, I I took art appreciation courses and art history courses, and we all learned about the starving artist. And there was no way I was going to be a starving artist, so <laughs> so uh, I kept on with my construction uh, career and. Worked until I got a pension. Then, ah, I'm free now. I can do all my artwork. It's a full-time job for me. I, I'm all constantly, constantly making stuff, making stuff. I don't know if I didn't have it, I what, what I would be doing. I'd be sitting in front of the TV, I guess, all day or something. Oh, anyway, it's a, it's a kind of a, like a lifesaver, that artwork. You hear the um, feeds the soul, you know. You, you hear all those kind of trite sayings, but they're they're true. <laughs> yeah. When I go visit him, he's always sitting in the sunroom feeding. Yeah, or there's a drum sitting outside yeah. when you walk up, and it's getting to get that drying it. Yeah. Are you passing along your skills? To yeah, yeah. I, I, I've uh, I've had classes. I've taught. And the other thing is, when I first started to dance, some guy come up to me and he says, oh, geez, I really like your beadwork. I says, yeah, but look at my hands. Look what I did to my hands. And, and he said, well, he said, you have to, um, you have to have Indian tan buckskin. That's just like cloth. Well, I thought, well, yeah, but I didn't know that it was still a, Available. So I went home one time and, and I, I thought, I'll ask my dad. I know he doesn't know, but I'm going to ask him anyway. And that's when he, I asked him, my dad said, hey, do you know how to make a buckskin? And he, he answered as if it was the most incredulously stupid question that he's ever asked. He said, of course I know how to make it. <laughs> he said, uh, I used to help my mother make it. That's kind of how I got started making buck making buckskin. So, I'm still making buckskin and teaching people how to make it. And so, hopefully, those things will be uh, passed on. You know, it won't, it won't be a lost art. Harry, you're becoming a, a storyteller. Uh, you know, in part under the mentorship of your mm -hmm. uncle. Uh, are you learning any of his art skills? You know, one of the things I picked up from him is, uh, and of course I have a, a childhood experience, but growing food, gardening. And uh, I grew up on a farm, so it was kind of always there. But um, 
you know, learning how to grow our Indian corn and making bashtayapi. So that will get passed on. And then, of course, he's also, one of my kids learned how to can hides and make the buckskin and eat, so I'm happy for that. Yeah. Well, yep. as we, oh, sorry, super. When I, when, I, when I retired and moved home, um, I asked my mother, I says, uh, makes a bush typing. She says, oh, no, no, nobody makes that anymore. Because when I was growing up, uh, my grandpa used to make it. And, of course, he was the one that brought it to all the community uh, meals, uh, wakes and funerals and all this. And then he died. And then Elsie Kavner did it for years until she died. And then it died out. When my mom told me that, oh, nobody does that anymore, I, I felt sad because I, I grew up with that and it's a really tasty meal. So the the Kavner family, uh, they did have some seed they gave me. That's how I started. I started that. Uh, I retired, so that's been 20-some years that I've been growing it. and. Um, I'm teaching that I'm teaching people now too because I'm I I always say with all seriousness, no jest, that I'm going to reincarnate as a Dakota and uh, and that that Bashtaibi uh, better still be there. So my part is going to teach those people. To, I um had a I had a cousin. Oh, that was Will. <laughs> he come to my house. Him and his cousin come to my house and. They wanted to learn about Bashtaipi and growing the corn and all this. So they told me ahead of time. So I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll get their interest. So I made him Bashtaipi. It's Will's cousin. He says, hey, well, there's still more Bashtaipi there. You have another bowl. God, he says, I've had five bowls already. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I got any more room for it. So, so that's how I tricked those Guys into wanting to learn how to raise corn and make pashtaibi. And that, you can tell people to do it and say how good it is. But when you experience it, then that's mm-hmm. a whole other uh, thing. So Maybe for our listeners who don't know what pashtaibi is, can you explain like how you make it and what's all it goes well, into it? it the, better, and... the best way to do it is to, is to break the word apart. Pa means head, but it means it's referring to that kernel in that corn. And shda means uh, shdayapi is to, is to make bald. So what you're doing is you're making the, the kernels bald. In other words, you're de-hulling that corn because when you're, uh, if you don't take that hull off, there's some nutrients inside that corn that becomes available to the body. And without, without it, there's a particular th- thing, I think it's called niacin, that if, you body, if, you're, if your body doesn't have niacin, you get this disease called pellagra. And there are some cultures that didn't do that, the, all the kernels, and they got this pellagra. So what, what, what the dehulling is, 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 is using wood ashes, which is a, a form of um, a lye, uh, a base, base material. We all remember our, we all remember our uh, uh, scientists, you know, where, Acid in a base. So 
So what that does, so what you do is you soak the corn in a lye of uh, water and ashes, wood ashes, hardwood ashes, got the most lime material in there. And then you, you boil it for about two years, uh, two, year, two years, <laughs> two hours, about two to three hours. And the, and the kernel gets big and it pops and that hull comes off and it, the kernels, the kernels are soft. And then you um, wash the ashes out. You put them through a colander or a sieve and you wash the ashes out. And then you can make your uh, beef and meat and I use um, uh, turnips and uh, uh, rutabaga. And I used to use corn, but uh, I mean, I used to use potatoes, but potatoes, there's something that, you know, it makes it bland. I, but I, that's, that's how I make it. It's really tasty. So now that we're all hungry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. We should probably wrap up, although we could keep this conversation going all day. Um, all right. I guess, you know, what are some ways our listeners can learn more about Dakota culture and Dakota people? Do you have any recommendations? Read our book. Yes. <laughs> Number one. Connect with yeah. Indian people. Connect with yeah. Indian people. I think that's a good point. I think a lot of people are scared to reach out mm-hmm. to or have some sort of hesitation, but I find mm-hmm. that. You know, when people reach out to me or many of the people in our community, everyone's really open and willing mm-hmm. um, to, yeah. to share. You can also go to our Wachipi. You, if you listen to the announcer, you can really learn a lot. Yeah. And then, of course, you can visit with people. What's next for both of you? What, what do you have on the project list? Are we going to see more books? Well, I told her, I said, you know, the, not all of Grandpa's stories are told. And not all of my stories are told, so if she's willing, we we make a book too. I don't know. That's all. That's that, that's a possibility. It's a possibility. I have yeah. another book coming out in May that I'm really excited about, um, and it brings some of these concepts to gardening and our land and foods and taking care of each other and as relatives. So. I'm excited about that. Perennial ceremony in yes. May. Ceremony. All mm. right. Well, Teresa, you've got, um, this isn't your only book. You've done children's books. Um, so you kind of have a wide array of yeah. things you've done as an author. Isn't that funny from someone who didn't like reading? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that it all kind of just happened by perchance. But yeah, Grasshopper Girl was um, my first book. It's a children's book. and and uh, I better, I better say Tom and Betsy Peacock, you know, they gave me an opportunity to, to share that story. So it's a story within a story. It's basically a kind of like this, but it's a children's version about the importance of stories and storytelling. And there's, you know, it's kind of like um, a children's historical fiction. So Grasshopper Girl is actually my mom's Dakota name, Sipsi Chidawichina. So it's a little bit about her, her story. Um, and hearing story from her dad, from my grandpa. Yeah. That's a wonderful book, too, that I encourage people to pick up. Um, I want to thank you both so much for being here today. Thank you for partnering us, with us for the Minnesota One Read. We've got a lot of great activities planned over the month of November, and 
we're just very grateful for your partnership. So thank you. Well, we're full of gratitude to, to all of you. This is, yeah, surreal. It's good to see that the exposure we're getting on this book. You know, when I think back about even when we started, you know, fortunate that MNHS picked us up, you know, I mean, that's an accomplishment right there just to be able to find a publisher, you know. Mm-hmm. So. The Minnesota Historical Society has also been uh, a wonderful partner as we yeah. uh, launch this campaign. So, so yeah. yeah. Again, thank you both for being here, and I look forward to seeing what we can do in November. Yeah, I am too. Yeah. Thank you for joining me for the Native Minnesota podcast. For more episodes, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also visit our website, understandnativemn.org, to learn more about our campaign's work to improve the Native narrative in Minnesota's public schools.